Welcome to Woodlawn. We're so glad you're here. Now today I want to begin by asking you a question. How did the gospel of Jesus Christ survive the first century? In 70 AD, all the ancient Judaism came to a screeching halt. The temple was torn down, the city was invaded, and the Jews were thrown out of Jerusalem. Because 2,000 years ago, a handful of people two months after the resurrection said, Jesus rose from the dead, and we are eyewitnesses that He is a resurrected Savior. Now, over a few weeks, there were over 5,000 men plus women and children who became converts to the way, that is, the way of following Christ. They didn't call Christians Christians back then. They said they were a part of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the way was something new. It was a movement of the church. The church began, and it was not about a building, but rather it was a movement. I've gotten saved, now I want to share with other people so they too can be saved. And through this new movement, there was this balance of power between Rome and the Jewish leaders. And Rome gave permission to the Jewish leaders, listen, we'll try to stay in our own lanes, but you try to take care of any unrest because if you don't take care of it, we're going to. And suddenly this new movement called the Way threatened that balance of power. And there was resistance and then persecution broke out. The apostles were arrested, and remember last week we said they were flogged. In other words, they would take a cat of nine tails, and it would literally, literally rip the skin off of their body as they beat them. And then they would tell them, now quit talking about the resurrection. But they would go out and they would say, we can't keep from talking about the resurrection and sharing the love of Jesus. We said that Stephen was the first martyr. And after he was killed, sadly, widespread persecution broke out. And then uh, there was a new person on the scene, and his name was Saul. We said that, remember, Saul was a Jew, he was a Roman citizen, and he persecuted the Christians. He did it thinking he was doing the right thing for God. Later on, Saul had a dramatic conversion. We talked about that last week, and then his name was changed to Paul. Many times in the Bible, when God did something miraculous or dramatic in someone's life, then their name would be changed to something else. And so now he went from persecuting Christians to being a Christian and sharing the faith. And then he decided to do something really crazy. He said, I'm going to take this message outside of Palestine. He basically said to the disciples, you keep preaching here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to go to Greece and Turkey and the Mediterranean Rim, and I'm going to talk to everybody I can about Jesus there. And everywhere he went, he started new little churches. And as he traveled in this dangerous part of the world, he said, God has done something unusual. He sent his son to die for us. Now, here's the problem. People were trying to live under the law, but they couldn't live up to the law because they were people. They were human. They couldn't be perfect. So here was their dilemma. They were asking, what do we do when we break the rules of the faith? What do we do about sin in our lives? And they didn't know how to deal with that because they could not follow the law the way they wanted to. And so now, how, how can we have peace with God when we've got this unrest in our lives because we're trying to do the right thing, but we can't? And God answered the problem by sending His Son to die so that we might live. Now, He introduces grace. 
Not only do we have law, but now we have grace. And if we fail, then we just have to go to God and confess and ask forgiveness. And then he gives us a new start and an opportunity to go again. Now, while Paul is doing all this back in Jerusalem, a controversy breaks out. This is about 20 years after the resurrection. And what happens is they start asking the question, who can be a part of the church? And how many rules do we have to keep? And how holy do we have to be? Now listen, it's an understandable controversy if you can understand the first century. They're a group of Jewish people who grew up. They're used to having the Ten Commandments and they're used to having 613 laws on top of that that they want to follow. So even though now they're, they're converts to Christianity, it's hard for them to shake off what they've learned in the past. The Ten Commandments are still going to be there. The 16, 613 laws were just to try to help them follow the Ten Commandments better. And they believed that the way of following Christ had to be an extension then of Judaism. So after all, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. So they assumed that in order to follow Jesus, they had to teach these new converts to first follow Moses. And essentially, you had to be Jewish to become Christian, which makes perfect sense because Jesus taught, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So you come first to be a Jew and then a Christian. But then all these Gentile believers from all over the region, they found themselves very confused. They said, wait a minute. Paul taught us that Jesus died for our sins and we can have peace with God through grace and through forgiveness. Now these leaders in Jerusalem are teaching us something else. You've got to clean up your act, then you've got to embrace Jesus so that you can become a, quote, church person. Because part of Christianity is a moral and ethical standard. In other words, you, you do have accountability that you have to live by. You know, you, you don't lie. If you're a husband, you treat your wife a certain way. If you're a wife, you treat your husband a certain way. There are some do's and don'ts in the faith. And so they got the Ten Commandments, this moral imperative to be part of a Christianity. And yet at the same time, there's this incredible message of grace and forgiveness. So with that conflict, church people, the church people, the established church people started building walls and barriers. And they said, we want you to become a part of a church, but there's certain things you've got to do before you can become a part of our church. And Jesus interacted with sinners and blew that out of the water because he was a perfect balance of grace and truth. You see, he told them the truth. He told them what they needed to hear, but he also let them experience grace. Jesus embodied the two of those perfectly, but the early church was wrestling with that. So in Acts 15, the first chapter, it says certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the believers. And here's what they were teaching them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And they're thinking, wait a minute, just a minute. Unless you have surgery, you can't be a Christian. Paul didn't tell us that part. And so it goes on in Scripture and it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and a debate with them. In other words, Paul and Barnabas were on the same side. They were debating with these Jewish converts, these leaders who were trying to disciple these new Christians. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem. 
where the message began. So Paul was going back to Jerusalem to say to them, um, he said, uh, to see the apostles and the elders about this question. He wanted to talk to them about it. So he went there to say, we need to get this straightened out. And then they go on in Scripture and say this in Acts 15. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported. Everything God had done through them, they said, was what was important. And they said, guys, we're sending mixed messages here to the Gentiles. So we've got to sort this out. And they kind of made a report. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were the ones who put Jesus to death. But some of the Pharisees, when they began to understand what Paul was teaching, they began to follow the way themselves. In other words, they were converted Jews. They became Christians too. They began to embrace the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was the Messiah. And what they said was, Jesus, you've just messed up all of our categories. We've had everything in a box all these years. Everything just fit and it worked perfectly. And now you've just blown that all apart. But there's not any way we can deny that you are the Messiah. So we're going to believe in you and follow you. And so some of those Pharisees joined the way. But they were so committed to the law of Moses because that's what they'd been taught. That's the way they'd grown up. But then they didn't know what to do. They were struggling. It says that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said this, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what they're saying is, Paul, now we want you to teach all these new converts that, that as new believers, they've got to change their whole lifestyle. They've got to follow 613 laws and they've got to have surgery for that to occur. And once they've digested all of that, and once they've done all that, then they can become a part of the church. Now, looking at it today, we think, well, that's just absurd. We know that that's not what Jesus asks us to do. But you have to understand it from their perspective. Now, listen, I want you to hear this because we can look at them and we can say, well, they're just making a point that doesn't make any sense to us. But sometimes we do the same thing. Listen to me. If you've been in the church for longer than 10 years, that kind of thinking begins to creep in. And what we begin to think about, if we're not careful, is we settle into our own version of what Christianity really is. In Acts, the fifth chapter, 15th chapter, it goes on and says, After much discussion about this, they're talking back and forth, Peter got up and addressed them. Now listen to what Peter says. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. In other words, if you've been a Christian for more than 10 years, this is a big phrase that's getting ready to come right here. You ready? He says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In other words, God didn't say they had to do all those things in order to become Christians. God said, you can accept the Holy Spirit just like we've accepted the Holy Spirit. He can live inside of you. And they go on and Peter says, He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 
And then he goes on and says this, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that we, neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? In other words, we can't even follow the law. Why would we expect the Gentiles to follow the law that we can't even follow? Let's not be hypocrites about this. Let's be willing to say that there's grace involved, and that's what they need to experience. So in Acts 15, it goes on and says, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as we are. In other words, we don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to jump through this hoop or this hoop. We don't have to keep the law perfectly. What we need to do is just begin to follow Jesus. Can we have a heart, you know, for God before he is able to purify us? You see, God takes us as we are, and, and we spend a lifetime with him turning us into who he wants us to be. He loves us the way we are. He just loves us too much to leave us that way. And if we can do that, you know, for us, if God can do that for us, he can certainly do it for all the people around us. So Peter goes on and he says, if you have doubts about Jesus being the son of God, then I've got a real reason for you to believe in that. And that is James. I want you to think about this. He's saying, James is a great reason for us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because James was the brother of Jesus. Now think about this. How hard would it be for you to convince your brother that you were God? <laughs> I mean, that's funny to me. You know, it's kind of like I can just hear what they're thinking in their mind. Well, you just think that you're mom's favorite. Well, you just think that you're better than everybody else. Now you think you're God? Who are you trying to kid? But even James could see in his brother Jesus that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. That's enough said right there. I mean, that's a big deal for a brother of somebody to say, you know, I recognize that in you. I see God in you, and I believe, and I want to follow that. In Scripture, it says that, that James spoke up then and said this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, he said, we've heard the debate, we've talked about it, but he said, you know, instead of making it hard, let's make it easy for these followers to come alongside of us and we'll teach them, we'll take them and we'll train them and we'll help them to grow in the faith. Instead, he said, here's what we should do. We should write to them, telling them to abstain from polluted pollution polluted by the idols, food, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. He's basically taken 613 laws and the Ten Commandments, and he's boiling that down to basically two things. And they were, try not to offend the Jews and abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, it's almost like one rule that he wants them to follow. He says, then just be the church. And here's what happened. It goes on in Scripture and says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so they decide to send this letter out explaining that from what James has said. And it says when the people got it, they read it, and they were glad for its encouraging message. And you know what happened? The church avoided its first big split. It was a church that was united and continued to be. 
Now, there are three things that you and I have got to avoid because every local church will drift toward three things if we're not careful. Three things we need to do in order to avoid the drift. First, we need to drift toward outsiders instead of insiders. I want to tell you a story. When I was serving a new church in Navarre, Florida many years ago, I was so anxious to reach lost people and we wanted to reach out to people and see them become followers of Christ that we targeted those people. And after several years of doing that and after several years of growing, we had a consultant come to our church one time and he said, I'm getting ready to tell y'all something I never tell churches. He said, I'm so busy trying to get churches to look outside of themselves that I never have to tell them to look inwardly because they're already doing that. It's just natural for churches. He said, but the church that you're in is so different. It's so outwardly focused that I want you to do something different just for a little while. I want you to focus inwardly in order to build up the base of your leadership so that you can grow so that then you can continue to focus outwardly. See, we were growing so fast, it was difficult for us to keep up with what was going on. And he told us something, he said, I've never told this to a church before. Now I gotta tell you, I was grateful for that. I was grateful that we were a part of a church that's outwardly focused. And I'm grateful that Woodlawn is a church that's outwardly focused. I believe it's in the DNA. Not every church will relocate from its first location to another location, but Woodlawn did. And that's why I'm so excited to be a part of this church, because it's a church that looks beyond itself. And what a blessing that is. Every local church, though, will drift toward being focused on insiders, on the people who are already here if we're not careful. So that's why we have to pray to be bold and look for opportunities then to stay outwardly focused. That's the drift we want to avoid. Now, the second one is we drift toward grace instead of the law. Every church, especially the older it gets, it has a tendency to begin to look at things in terms of categories and policies. And that's what happened to the early church. The Gentile policy is, well, you've got to follow Moses first before you can follow Jesus. You've got to keep the law, right? And, and the church then began to drift away from grace into law. And then Jesus, he, he just kind of came along and said, Matthew, I want you to come with us. We're going to have a conversation. And you can just hear the disciples saying, well, we can't do that with him. He's a tax collector. What are you thinking about? He's still in that category. We, we got to get him out of that category. He's in the wrong category. And Jesus was saying, Ah, don't worry about it. Let, let's just bring him along with us. Let's just let him go. We'll just teach him along the way. It'll be on the job training. And so, <clears throat> where are we going, they said. Well, we're going to go to his house. We're going to his house? Well, that's even worse. We can't go to his house. He's a tax collector. And Jesus said, well, that's not all we're going to do. Next, we're going to go see Zacchaeus. And then we're going to go to his house. And they're going, no, no, no. That's not the way we do it. That's not the way things work. And Jesus is saying, well... We got a new way to make things work. He said, that's not all we're going to do. We're going to go visit this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And I'm going to tell those people who want to stone her to just go stone the 
themselves. And then I'm going to tell her I don't condemn her. I forgive her and don't do that anymore. And we're just going to go on. We're going to try to take as many people with us as we possibly can. And he just, he just taught through conversations of grace. And that's what Jesus did. And the local church, that's what the local church is supposed to do as well. Years ago when I was a youth minister, I was at First Methodist Church in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and I had a big youth group, and I had all these small groups and where I was teaching these young people. And so I would disciple them in these classes that we had, but then I would also meet with each one of them individually every week. And there were several of those classes, so there were a lot of them to meet with. And I would go through the Roman road with them and explain what the book of Romans talks about when it talks about how to become a Christian. And many of them, one-on-one, -on -one, would accept Christ. Now, I didn't know any better. I was young. I was right out of seminary. And so I didn't know that you could just go and say, look, I need to buy a bunch of Bibles, okay? So give me some money and I'll do that. So when I first started, I didn't know any better. And I would go to the Christian bookstore in town and I would buy one Bible. They cost $9.95. And I would get them a paraphrased Bible, one that they could read and understand. And then I would write in it about the day they made their commitment. I would put their name in it and the date, and I would give it to them. Well, every week I was buying a Bible, and I was giving it to another young person. And sometimes I was buying more than one. And, and I had to have this order form to go get the Bibles, okay? So I had to go get like three people to sign off on me buying a Bible. And, you know, I'm driving back and forth to the Christian bookstore just about every week, you know, trying to do that. Finally, it occurred to me, you know, I can get more Bibles. They got more at the store. We got more money here. Why am I just asking for one at a time? Why don't I say, why don't you just buy me some Bibles? And after we had done that for a while, they said, look, we're just going to buy you some Bibles so you can have them in your office and you can give them to these young people when they become Christians. Now, I think that's kind of the attitude Jesus had. He said, let me just take them where they are. I don't care what they've done in the past. It doesn't matter. Forget about the categories. Forget about the way we've done things in the past. Let's just take them with us. Let's just take as many people as we possibly can. Don't worry about the details. We're just going to teach them as they walk with us along the way. Our tendency is to do exactly what the Jewish people did. Wait a minute, we've got to preserve the law. And the law is important and accountability is important. That's important, but that's not all there is. And in their effort to preserve something that was really good, they forgot to advance the kingdom of God. You see how you can go overboard on something like that? You see, what we want is that, that conviction and that truth and, and that grace all at the same time. We want to do what Jesus did. We want to have that balance. We want to teach them all that they can learn, but we want them to experience grace too. And Jesus came along and said, we're just going to advance the kingdom. And yeah, it could get messy and it may not fit in the categories, but it's okay. We're going to go from there. And we may make mistakes as we follow along. And in our desire to preserve you know, we don't need to let that override our mission and our passion to advance the cause. We have to do ministry open-handed. God gave it. God can take it because God is the one who really does the work in someone's heart. And we're not trying to preserve anything. We're just trying to follow God's plan. And that happens to the local church all the time. So I'd like for us to make three commitments. The first one is this. I want us to be bold in what we do. Do you know how to keep from being an insider focused? 
Well, you have to be bold in terms of who you invite. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you're out in the community and you see people, and you know, I see people all the time and I'm thinking, I wonder if that person's a Christian. I wonder if they know Jesus. I, I wonder what their story is in life. I, you know, do you ever see people and you think, I need to invite that person to church. And then maybe you have this second thought, but I'm not sure they would fit in. Or maybe you see them and you think, well, you know, I need to invite people to church, but I'm not sure that's the person I need to invite. I want to just blow that out of the water. I want you to just give that to God. I want you to just leave that at His feet and just say, you know what? God, if you put it on my heart, I'm going to invite everybody I get a chance to invite, and I'm just going to let you deal with them because He deals with them anyway. It's not up to us to deal with them. It's up to Him to do that. And then second, we need to err on the side of grace. You know, when there's a conflict between a moral imperative and a person who's just not quite there and following God, we have to decide, well, how are we going to do this? Let's err on the side of grace. Aren't you glad that somebody erred on the side of grace where you were concerned? So the question is, why wouldn't we err on the side of grace for others? And the last thing is, remain open-handed. We need to remain open-handed. What I mean by that is, let's not be a church that accidentally drifts into a posture to protect something as opposed to advancing something. Because we have to believe what James said was right. He stood up and said, I can't answer all the questions about everything and everybody. But he said, here's what I know. Let's not make it difficult for people to follow Jesus. Let's make it simple. Let's make it warm and inviting. Let's make it hospitable. Let's make it winsome. Let's be the kind of people that just love people into the kingdom. And if we're intentional about avoiding those things I mentioned, then perhaps God will use us because we're unique and we're remarkable. And He can work through us because we're sensitive as we continue to try to be that movement called the church. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you that you give us the privilege to get a front row seat to watch you work every day. Lord, help us not to worry about the details. Help us just to look at the big picture and say, you know, while I'm on this earth, I want to do everything I can to reach as many people as I can for the kingdom of God. And I let God take care of the details from that on. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege to participate, to join you in something that is eternal. I pray in your Son's name. Amen.